0: Hey everyone, Alana here, and it's been a lot of fun making this podcast. I get to talk about what I love, meet some really cool people doing it, and I have total creative freedom. Are you interested in making your own podcast? Go for it! And go for it with Anchor. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many, many more platforms. There's even creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And best of all, it's free. So what are you waiting for? Download the free Anchor app or go to Anchor FM to get started. Girl presses. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Girl Presses Play, the movie podcast where we talk about films, what we think about them, and what makes them so damn great. I'm your host, Alana Rafferty. Get comfy, grab some popcorn, and get ready, because we're about to press play. And now for our feature presentation. Hey folks, I hope you all are staying well and safe and of course watching lots and lots of movies. Today's episode is a little bit strange because we'll be talking about something that's technically a filmmaking medium, but over the years seemed to become somewhat of a genre. Today we're gonna be talking about animation. I got the idea for this episode when I finally bought the bullet and just got a Disney Plus subscription like the rest of the world. And Disney Plus has been this treasure trove of animated films from the past and present, from my childhood, and from many other people's childhoods. But while Disney films are great, especially the animated stuff, it really is, there's a definite set of conventions that they use, as well as a very specific target audience, which... Obviously, for anyone who's seen a Disney film, is young children and their families. It makes sense since, as childhood behavior specialist Tiffany Mann points out, the simplistic plots and varied motions of the main characters that are usually around children's age makes them a lot more relatable. And also for younger children whose minds are still developing, easy to understand. But what about the animated films not necessarily made for kids and families? There are a lot of filmmakers out there who specifically use animation to tell these really complex and deep stories with the tools that are available to them through this medium. A really good example of that is filmmaker Satoshi Khan who definitely doesn't make kids films, said that he loves how much quicker the edits can be in animation, and it allows him to really finesse the pacing of the film to be what he wants it to be. And when you think about it, since a filmmaker, when they're doing animation, it isn't bound by the physical limitations of real life and gravity and science. The ways that you can tell an animated story are pretty much limitless. So in today's episode, we are celebrating the films that really push the limits of filmmaking by using the techniques available to them in the medium, not the genre, of animation. Just a quick warning that today's episode will contain some mild spoilers for the film's Toy Story, Anomalisa, The Triplets of Belleville, and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. You have been warned. You know we can't talk about animated films that change the game without talking about the OG film, 1995's Toy Story. And for a point of clarification, just because I feel like a lot of people get this... Mixed up, and I get this mixed up all the time. Toy Story wasn't actually a Disney movie per se. It was a Pixar film that was released by Disney. But now that Disney owns Pixar and all of that, you get the drift. When talking about this film, especially about how revolutionary it was, it's easy to go into the technical stuff about it. For example, how computer animation Even though it's so common today, it was this brand new thing that people didn't think could be done on such a large scale. And the computer animation really was revolutionary for that time. I don't want to take away from that. But I think what made it such a game changer was the fact that the script seemed really simple on paper, but for an animated film targeted towards children and families, it was really complex for it its day in that it was giving inanimate objects agency and consciousness. Sure, there were films like The Silly Symphonies of the 1940s and you could even argue Fantasia that that gave inanimate objects life, but those characters in question never really pondered their identities or their purpose in life, the way that the toys in this film are very conscious of their identities and their existence in this very kind of philosophical, Descartesian sort of way. Toy Story was also one of the first films that really used a lot of filmmaking-specific techniques to, get, to give depth to the story, rather than just the typical cut-to-this-shot, cut-to-that-shot, then-cut-to-that-shot technique that a lot of animation films used. And to be quite honest, a lot of animation films only had the capacity to do. They used pans and close-ups and things like that to really give a lot of emotional depth to the storytelling. Terry Gilliam has a great quote about it. He said, "'It's got a shot that's always stuck with me when Buzz Lightyear discovers he's a toy. He's sitting on this landing at the top of the staircase, and the camera pulls back, and he's this tiny little figure. He was this guy with a massive ego two seconds before, and it's just stunning.'" I think also a lot of the depth of the human characters was really interesting, too. Even as evil and scary as as he was, Sid was this really interesting... He was this angry kid that didn't like toys and preferred to torture and maim and rearrange them. And when you think about it, that's really freaking intentionally dark for a, a Disney film. There's been plenty of, you know... Bambi-like moments in Disney films where they come off as dark, but once you grow up and see them, they're a little bit better. They're more palatable. But Sid is just so full of anger and retribution. And I feel like that's a character you really hadn't seen before in a lot of animated films. It broke a lot of the the conventions of the time. It was not primarily a musical. It was a modern story. It was original characters. I think that was a very good thing for animation as someone who watches so much of it I've gotten tired of having mice sing at me. I think Toy Story became the standard in the industry because it set a whole new precedent uh, for the quality that people expect in an animated movie. And as the years, and of course many wonderful Toy Story sequels continued, other animated films started cropping up as well, especially in the early 2000s. DreamWorks had their mega hit Shrek, they also made the Highly, highly underrated Road to El Dorado, which is on Hulu if you feel the need to watch it again. And of course, The Prince of Egypt and Nickelodeon got into the future film game as well with mostly properties that they were trying to franchise in some sort of way. So films like The Rugrats Movie, which was adapted from their hit TV series, or Jimmy Neutron Boy Genius, which they later turned into a long running animated series, But there were also a crop of filmmakers, especially European filmmakers, and we'll get to that in a minute, who were doing things in a different way and really using animation as a tool to express themselves and really strengthen and refine their ideas rather than confine themselves simply because animation was mostly used to tell children's stories One of those filmmakers who I definitely, definitely want to talk about is Sylvian Chomay with his feature debut, The Triplets of Belleville. So I'll go over the plot of this film because it is pretty interesting to me how many fellow cinephiles haven't actually seen this film or they've maybe only seen a clip or two of this film. So the film, The Triplets of Belleville, is about this elderly woman, Madame Souza, whose grandson gets kidnapped during what is essentially the Tour de France. And she teams up with this band of elderly triplets to go and find the mafia boss that kidnapped her son and return him to safety. It's a strange film, but it's a wonderful film. It's a wonderfully strange film that only the French can make. And if you've seen any older animated French films such as Fantastic Planet, you definitely know what I'm talking about. I could go on about just how great the film is from a story perspective, but it was really eye-opening to examine the film again from specifically a visual perspective. I never really noticed until re-watching it that the way it caricatured the characters so that you really saw them from the filmmaker's perspective rather than this very standardized perspective on what the person looks like, I thought was really interesting. When most people think animated films, they think bright, high key colors that just look like a big Crayola box. But this film really goes in the opposite direction and uses these really rich, but very muted colors that weren't, and to be quite honest, aren't common in mainstream animation. And probably because people forgot you could use muted colors in animation but probably one of the biggest things that might turn most audiences away from this film is the fact that is the two facts that a there's no dialogue there is some singing and there is one bit of dialogue in the end but there's no dialogue for 99.9% of the film and it's very unconventional protagonist it's four elderly women (laughs) that don't say anything. And I could see why people wouldn't really be sure how to get on board with that, and especially children figure out how to relate to it. But not just as a filmmaker, but to be quite honest, as a woman, it was so refreshing and wonderful to see a bunch of octogenarian ladies very much being celebrated as the heroines of this story. You don't just not see that a lot in animation. You don't really see that a lot in films, period. So I thought that was a very risky move that was really wonderful and paid off. While this movie didn't get the recognition and box office success that I personally think it deserves, from my research, it does seem to have found quite a devout following over the last couple of years to bring it all back to quarantine, especially now in quarantine, that people are really taking time to discover movies that they may not have watched, they may not have taken a chance on before they had all this time in the world. So I think when all is said and done, it will go down as one of the more prominent films in animation. film that I recently checked out that I really wanted to add to this episode for a couple of reasons. One, the way in which it came to be an animated film is really interesting and pretty different from other films that I've seen. And I also thought it was a great example of, while The Triplets of Belleville was made for a more mature audience, I think this story, not just in terms of the Appropriateness, but just the content and what kind of things it's talking about was very much made for an adult audience. And that film is the 2015 film Anomalisa by Charlie Kaufman. So, two things that I thought were important to note before getting into this film. One, this film was made without any major studio funding. Kaufman and his co director, Duke Johnson, ran a Kickstarter campaign and raised about $400,000. But then once the film is made, it was released by Paramount. And two, which I think is really the important thing, is this film wasn't actually written as an animated film. It was originally written as a sound play, where they had the two actors, David Thulis and Jennifer Jason Lee, sitting across from each other reading the lines, and Tom Noonan, who plays everyone else, sitting in between them. And then once that sound play was recorded and saved... The producers, Dino Stamatopoulos and Dan Harmon, encouraged Kaufman to make it a feature film. And there were a couple of reasons why Kaufman specifically chose the medium of animation to tell this story. One is that... Because the film plays with the concept of what's called Fergoli syndrome, which is the very rare disorder where everyone around you looks and sounds exactly the same. And in order to really be able to do that, they use the same vocal performance by Tom Noonan for every single character that isn't Michael or Lisa, which are our two leads. And they use the same standard face for every character that isn't Michael or Lisa. So you really get a sense of the loneliness and the isolation and the feeling that there's no one out there that's just for you, which is exactly the feeling that our main character Michael feels during the film and presumably for most of his life. There's also a certain imperfect handcrafted feeling that stop motion animation has in that because it's made by hand and not by a computer or it's not two live human actors who have just come out of two hours in the makeup trailer looking like gods that have visited Earth just for our movie pleasure. Um, The animation was done with puppets, basically 3D printing on puppets. And because of that, you see all of the little seam lines where the puppets were put together. And because of that, there's this very apparent imperfection That is very humane and very realistic because even non-puppet people like ourselves, we all have lines and wrinkles and weird little bits on our face that we don't like. And I think that really, I think the faults, quote unquote, of the lines in the characters' faces and also sometimes on different body parts, it really helps you feel connected and feel like this is a very universal story as well as a universal experience. I do think for better or for worse though, it does make it a movie that is very much for people who have lived a certain amount of life and have a certain amount of scars from it. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I just think that it's a very universal experience for certain people. I wanted it to be for adults. That was the important thing about it I, mean, I wanted it to be naturalistic and emotional. I think you're extraordinary. Why? I don't know yet. It's just obvious to me that you are. Critics pretty much universally loved it. There was one reviewer that I found, Lee Marshall, who said he was a little bit distracted by the everyone else device and thought that maybe would have worked better with real actors possibly the way they did it in Being John Malkovich, with Kaufman, which Kaufman also wrote. So it did really well with critics, but it didn't necessarily do well with audiences. And I think why is because the format allowed them to assume that they knew what kind of story would be told. They thought it was going to be something perhaps a little more warm and fuzzy and life-affirming and not to totally spoil the movie. It's not, but I think it's, great because of that. I think it's this realistic version of the hero's journey in some ways. It's what a human would really do put into sharp focus by the fact that it's an animated film so it's in a medium you're not used to seeing adult stories be told in. And I will fully admit I didn't I didn't love this film, but I didn't hate this film. But not because of the fact that it was an adult drama told through animation. It's not like I had all these expectations and they were broken. It's more of, I thought there could have been a little more exploration of the afterwards of one or two of the big moments. And maybe that is me bringing expectations that I've had met in other animated films to a film that maybe doesn't want to meet my expectations or tell this very neat, clean story that I've come to expect from films in the animated medium. And I really respect that. I do think it's a beautiful film. I think the voice performances are great and the animation is stunning. And the soundtrack is really good too. So I think in terms of films within the medium of animation, I think it is important to at least Give it a chance. Give it a shot. You may be surprised. It may be your new favorite animated film of all time. But now on to one of my favorite, not just animated films, but films ever. And I'm sure millions of people would say the exact thing. We are talking about 2018's masterpiece, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. There are so many reasons I love this movie, but I made an outline so we don't go on a diatribe and we're gonna relate this to everything we've talked about. So I think this movie is a perfect combo of what made both Toy Story and The Triplets of Belleville so great because they're both a very fresh take on the hero's journey and they use the animation to not only tell That journey and show that journey, but they use the animation to also really individualize the characters and. I actually think it's somewhat similar to Anomalisa in that it plays with what the medium of animation is meant for in regards to how a story is told, specifically how a story is told visually. There is this great behind-the-scenes video on Wired.com where they speak with Danny Dimian, the visual effects supervisor, and Josh Beveridge, who is the head of character animation for the film. And one thing they've said in this video along with many other behind-the-scenes videos is that they wanted the film to look like a comic book and they didn't want anything to be soft or realistic. They wanted it to feel like a comic book come to life. So they didn't use any sort of motion blurring. They had a lot of, I guess you would call them hard lines on foreheads and smile lines to make the emotions look much more animated and dramatic. They also used what's called in comic book animation, the Kirby Dots, which were, for those of you who aren't familiar, Jack Kirby was one of the original animators at Marvel Comics who created all of the originals with Stan Lee and what he did to show motions and superpowers and all these things that you can't really describe. He used these multicolored dots to create movement within the paneling, and they use that as a motif within the film, which works so beautifully. And I think what those two techniques did, which is really fascinating, is it took two types of films that had become somewhat standardized over the years, animated films and superhero films. And because of the pursuit of imperfection, Spider-Verse changed the game for both. People, at least in my circles, people say this is not only one of the best animated films I've seen, this is one of the best superhero films I've ever seen. And I think part of that imperfection also does come from the fact that they were going for cinematic. They weren't going for realistic. To use an example of a great film, Iron Man. Iron Man really tried to ground the superhero origin story in realism and character journeys and everything does look like it would happen in reality. And I think that's great. And I definitely think in order for the superhero genre to have the renaissance that it did, John Favreau needed to do that. But I do think that became somewhat of a standard in terms of how filmmakers behind superhero movies approached not only the stories, but as well as the special effects. But That's another episode for another time. What I think I'm trying to say is that the imperfections and the parts that aren't to scale and the colors that are very high def, it makes it feel much more alive and visceral in a way. I think a great example of that unrealistic yet visceral experience is the scene that was used in a lot of the key art so people have probably seen still frames of it but one of the scenes in the third act is what i call the leap of faith scene and the way that they curved the building so it doesn't actually make sense in terms of measurements and miles morales's scale to all the other buildings in the sky none of it looks realistic, and yet it's such an exhilarating experience because much like the character in that moment, you're kind of trying to find your ground, but you're also just letting yourself free fall into this moment. And I just think it's such a beautifully done scene. I also thought upon revisiting this film, one thing that actually made it very similar to Triplets of Belleville and Sylvain Chomay's animation style is how, differently each spider from each different spider versus animated all of them look like they're from a different movie and yet they feel very cohesive and it reminded me a lot of how Sylviane chaumet made every single character in the triplets of belleville very exaggerated and almost feel like they're all coming from different worlds when do i know i'm spider-man you won't That's all it is, is, A leap of faith. Like, what's up, danger? Danger, danger, danger. Like, what's up, danger? Fortunately, not only has this little podcaster recognized how amazing this movie is, but lots and lots and lots of people did. In fact, fun little trivia fact, after it went on to make boatloads of money, It also won the Academy Award for Best Animated Film, and it was the first non-Disney film to do so in six years. I think it's really turning the needle in a new direction that animated films aren't just kids' films. Yes, this movie was made so that it was appropriate for kids so kids could see it, but it was made to be this universal story that everyone could just get behind and fall into the world of, so. I am very excited to see what a post-Spider-Verse world of animation looks like. And I hope this episode made you excited for a post-Spider-Verse world of animation as well. And it should be exciting with new technology and new voices and a changing perspective on what kind of stories we can tell and how, animation as specifically a medium, I think is really gonna continue to evolve and get us to ask some serious questions about how we can visually tell a story. If you wanna do some more film research, some other animated films that I've seen that I highly recommend are Paprika by Satoshi Khan, Coraline by Henry Selick, Fantastic Planet by Renée Lalou, and also Persepolis by Marjan Satrapi. These are some films that I personally haven't seen, but I've heard are definitely worth checking out, are I Lost My Body by Jeremy Clapon, Chico and Rita by Tono Erando, Fernando Tureba, and Javier Mariscal, Your Name by Makoto Shinkai, and The Breadwinner by Nora Tuami. So go forth and watch, and I shall see you next week for episode five. See you soon. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to check back every Tuesday for new episodes, and be sure to check us out on our Patreon page, where you can support the show and get some really cool exclusive stuff for doing it. A very special thanks to our Patreon supporters, John F. Variolo Fencing LLC, and Helen Rafferty. For news on upcoming episodes, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Girl Presses Play. The show is written, produced, and hosted by Alana Rafferty. Intro music is composed by Asha Iwanowicz, and our logo design is by Mark Sauvé. Thanks again. See you next time. Girl, is